You're listening to The Creator's Channel. Hey everybody, Chris Kelly here with ProductionCrate.com. Welcome to The Creator's Channel. Today I am joined by Alan McKay, visual effects supervisor and technical director. Alan has worked on films like Flight, Bloodshot, he has done video game cinematics. Alan has a really, really awesome reel, which you should definitely check out. Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Alan, can you give everybody a little more detail on your background and what you do? I was pretty impressed by you because, like, um, usually if someone says, what do you do? Um, I got to go, like, IMDb or something to <laughs> look up what the hell I've done. I usually deer in the headlights. Um, I guess I've been in the industry for 25 years. I've been working at Industrial Light & Magic, Blur, Pixelmondo, Ubisoft, you know, a lot of uh, different places like that over the years. Originally from Australia, and I moved here when I was 21. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I've been doing this for quite a long time. And I guess uh, on top of that, like these days, I tend to focus a lot more on helping people with their career as well. Just knowing that a lot of people tend to get really fixated on the wrong levers to pull when it comes to trying to get the success they want. So, that's definitely kind of been a big passion of mine as well. So did you move to the U.S. from Australia for visual effects related stuff or something mm-hmm. unrelated? Yeah, uh, well, to party and drink. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I've been doing this for quite a long time at that point. I actually quit school uh, when I was 13 and I just realized one day I wasn't going back. So I'm like, I better do something with my life. And um, I got really fixated on visual effects. This was this new thing at the time that... I couldn't really, I, when Toy Story came out, it was the first time I could point at something and say, that's the kind of stuff that I want to do. And um, yeah, I mean, the reason I moved to the States was because I was getting a lot of offers and I didn't want to go until I was 21 because I couldn't really wrap my head around like what I would do for fun <laughs> being Australian and um, not being allowed into bars. So it was two <laughs> weeks after I turned 21, I, it's the stamp in my passport, I you know, hopped on a plane and, and moved over and yeah, just kind of been bumming around ever since. How did you go from high school dropout to visual effects? Uh, persistence, I guess. Um, I'd always been an artist, so I'd always loved drawing and I didn't really have much money. I lived with my mom. So it was just the two of us in like a tiny little, little place. And so I got kind of used to, you know, kind of if I need to make something happen, I got to do it myself. So my first computer I got, uh, it's like a 286 through um, selling my artwork and just kind of hassling everyone I, I meet on a bus or a train. Like, you know, here's my artwork. Do you want to buy some? And got my money together by my first computer. I got into 2D animation doing like pixel by pixel, like using deluxe paint and a lot of other tools like that, Animator Pro. And the thing was that I was good as an artist, but I wasn't great. And I was always kind of fixated on how clean and plasticky all this 3D stuff was that was coming out at the time. And so that was kind of this thing that I got fascinated by is like, I could never draw that good to these 3D renders. So that kind of got me peaked my interest, I should say, but um, I didn't really know how to get access to the software or anything like that. So it was just kind of like in the back of my mind. And when I finally discovered 3D and got like 3D Studio DOS and Pavre and a few other ones like that, that's where I just went all in and um, there's no internet at the time, but it just gave me this avenue to kind of obsess about and work late nights. And I'd only go to sleep and my renders were ready to queue up and I'd set my alarm based on the estimated amount of time remaining on my render. So like four hours, six hours and go to sleep and get back up and get back to it. 
So what was your learning process like then without like for me, I'm all self-taught. I didn't go to school for this stuff and all, you know, the internet, you can find anything you can possibly imagine. Like the most like specific bug you're having, you can like find a whole forum on like how to bypass it or whatever. But back then without it, like, are you digging through books or is it just trial and error? The only book I ever got was New Writers Publishing had Inside 3D Studio DOS R3. And um, so I got that, which taught me some stuff like how to loft a canoe or like really trivial stuff that Mm -hmm. is nice, but it's not really going to get you very far. But, you know, it was was definitely trial and error. And that's the embarrassing thing is like stuff like keyframing. It's, you know, it was stuff that I didn't really understand at the time. I'm like, you know, using the keyframer in, in 3ds DOS to like set keys, but I didn't really understand what that was. And so a lot of the times it would be like, I'd be walking down the street and it would just click and I'm like, oh, okay, that's how that works. And when I get back to the computer, I'd, you know, get back to work and, and figure things out. So I think in a lot of ways it's trial and error, but I do think that it's kind of valuable too for a lot of us, if it's handed to us on a platter, then we don't really appreciate it as much, but when we've kind of had to slave a way to figure it all out, mm-hmm. then, um, you know, it's, it's more worthwhile. But that's also why I kind of got into doing a lot of tutorials and articles and putting out training back in the 90s was just because no one else was really sharing their quote unquote secrets. So mm-hmm. that kind of made me really want to share all of this stuff to kind of help people not have to go through spending two weeks to figure out how to make clouds or whatever it was that I was obsessing with at the time. Yeah. So, I mean, you've been in the industry, you said 25 years about now. About that, yeah. What is What are some of your favorite tools or advancements in the industry that you have seen? Like, I think you can really appreciate mm-hmm. any advancements that have happened because you know yeah. how to like do the, the, the very basics back in the day. It's a good question. Um, I think it's such an open-ended one. I think ZBrush is just for me, like... Mm when I look at how much that changed the game, because it's such an old school thing now. I mean, we were using ZBrush back in like 2004, 2005. And just to say that that was a big innovation for a lot of people is like, what do you mean? It's been around forever. But to look at how typically we would do things as well as kind of the the barrier of resistance to, to actually do this sort of stuff, typically you would need to get very savvy in computers before you could start pushing around polys and, and doing this sort of thing. But ZBrush came along, it became so intuitive that everyone could start messing around and sculpting and figure out a way to utilize it for what they're doing. So I thought that has been really powerful. And then just in general, you know, looking at Unreal, for instance, mm-hmm. just again, having something so accessible and having such a massive community and then having such a supportive community Epic's created as well and acquiring uh, Quixel for mega scans yeah, and doing grants, you know, there's just been, it's very easy to point like, Oh, that bit of tech is really cool. Or that program's really cool. But I think it's more the companies who kind of create community or the tools that allow people who don't have a massive amount of technical knowledge behind them to be able to be an artist um, doing this sort of thing. That to me, I think is really interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. So, I, so you, you were, mostly like self-taught figuring things out high school dropout i'm still trying to figure out like how you got from like this spot here with like these limited tools and Mm -hmm. like you know little to no internet to doing the work you do and like moving to the u.s like it yeah it's like it's got to be so much like the barrier to entry now compared to back then i feel like is completely different 
It's, it's different in different ways because I feel like a lot of people will always make excuses as to why they can't do something. Before it would be that there's not enough studios around and now it would be there's too many artists, it's too much of a saturated mm-hmm. industry. And again, like I just feel like a lot of that is let me create an excuse not to try. But these days there's so much opportunity. Everyone needs visual effects. Visual effects is taught in high school. You know, it's something that there is a lot of people doing this, but there's also a massive need for it as well. It's just more about figuring out how to stand out and, you know, building a personal brand is really critical for that. But to backpedal for a second, like for me growing up, like my whole thing was I quit school. And at that point I realized like, okay, I've got to do something with my life because I don't want to be just a typical high school dropout. And that basically meant that I, I needed to kind of fixate on something and obsessing about visual effects being this thing that I, I felt like I really wanted to get into. The few documentaries or whatever you'd watch on TV, it would be Industrial Light of Magic and Hollywood and all these things. And to me at the time, like Hollywood was a fictional place. It didn't exist in the real world as this thing on TV that you see, mm-hmm. especially without the internet, the world was way more segregated than it is now. In my opinion now, like you can be anywhere in the world in 12 hours, you hop on a plane and, and head over. But back then it was a whole other thing. And that meant that I had this goal of, you know, by the age of 40, I hoped that I would be able to get to Hollywood and be a visual effects supervisor and work at Industrial Light of Magic or Blur or one of these different studios. And I think the big thing like that I see a lot of artists experience and they think they're alone with is that they get a lot of resistance from people around them. They don't get the support that they need. Mm-hmm. And for me, like saying that I want to go work in Hollywood doing visual effects for feature film, that to a lot of people is like, you're dreaming, like go back to school, you know, pick a different career. Art doesn't pay, you know, you're not going to make it, you're going to fail. Like you would get a lot of that. And hmm. that to me is something that I share a lot more now, knowing that a lot of people are like, wow, like I've been experiencing that my whole time. And, or I gave up on my dreams because my parents told me I need to do something realistic. So I became a blue collar worker or I went off and, um, you know, decided to be a lawyer or whatever it is, architect. And that, that is something that when you realize you're not alone and you start to also become more self-aware that there is a lot of that resistance around us because people either were wanting to be an artist themselves and they're projecting that onto you because they never followed their dreams or they're afraid or don't understand or have the idea of the starving artist in their mind. Mm -hmm. And when you realize like you're doing something that you don't enjoy and there's this, this is nagging kind of feeling like I, I want to do art and you finally decide to go all in on it, like having strategy behind it rather than just fumbling around, you can go and get paid and make a a good career doing art. But I think the reward of that, like getting to wake up every day and enjoy what you do it, you know, it's, it's so uh, satisfactory to actually get to experience that. And most of us kind of get cheated out of that too young. Yeah. So uh, kind of a difficult question, I guess, for you, you, you do like, um, I mean, I'm sure a lot of our viewers and listeners are familiar with your name, have maybe seen some of your courses or listened to your podcast, watch some of the breakdowns that you do on YouTube. You're you're very active in the community and you're very free with the knowledge that you have earned with the community, which I am personally very grateful for because I've learned a lot. Um, but you're you're talking about, you know, pursue your dreams and everything, but what happens when you like 
what if you're dealing with somebody who you don't think actually has what it takes? Has that, is that a possibility? Has that ever happened? Like, do you? Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. So I'll try to tie back to the question you asked before that I didn't successfully answer. And um, I'll try to answer that too. But for, for me early on, the way that I was able to say, okay, I've got this big lofty goal and I want to go and, you know, work in LA and do all these things. Like, I think the most valuable thing that I ever did just to kind of go back to that for a second is that mm-hmm. I kind of approached things in a way that I still do today, which is that I always started with the end in mind. So rather than looking at where I am now, and this is the problem I think most of us have is that we look at where we are right now. Maybe I'm 18 and I've got this hobby doing 3D and I'm trying to figure out how to make it into a career. I'm trying to look at where I'm currently at and I'm looking at where everyone else is and you can't connect the dots. And the problem is that everyone thinks that that's what they need to be doing. So there's this huge disconnect. So for me at 13, 14, around there, having a goal of like, I wanna go to LA and do all this stuff that just sounds ridiculous to anyone, including myself at the time, I couldn't do that being the kid that I am. Like, what do I have? I got nothing. I don't need, I'm not even good at doing this thing yet. But the difference is, I think that a lot of us look at where we are and we say, well, I can never do that rather than looking at, well, of course I can't. But in, instead of looking at, I'm trying to get to that result, it's more, well, if I can't do it, what would it take to do it? Like if someone else could do it, because it's very easily more mentally, and this is a good psychological exercise to have is that most of the time we can't apply things to ourselves. We talk ourselves out of it. But if we mm-hmm. were to say, if somebody else were to be able to do that goal of you know, VFX souping and blah, 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 what would that person's qualifications need to be? What would that person have needed to have done? And I think that that's a lot easier for you to then start to write down like, okay, well, they're going to need to have connections. They're going to need to have experience. They're going to need to have a reel before they could have a good reel. They're going to need to know what the hell they're doing. But bit by bit, you can deconstruct those kind of characteristics of that person who actually could obtain that thing that right now you can't see a linear path to. And that's a good way as an exercise to look at, okay, here's the opportunity, but my goal would be like, what, what is the person who could do those things? What have they done to get there and deconstruct that into a bit of a roadmap of, okay, I can't do this thing, but if I were to go and focus on getting experience, uh, targeting key studios that others might've worked at ILM or wherever you wanted to work before, Mm -hmm. like look at people who've done it before and start to deconstruct their history and kind of write out a big long laundry list of all the things that you would need to obtain that goal, that becomes your goal. Not I need to go to the moon or I need to go to LA. It's I need to get all of these things. How do I get those things? And it goes from being impossible to just being like, holy crap, that's just a lot of work. You know, am I obsessed? Am I committed enough to actually go and do this thing that's probably going to take five years, 10 years, 15 years. Right. And that's where it all changes. It's like, okay, now it's not a unrealistic goal. It's realistic. It's just going to be a lot of work. So to loop back around though, to what you were saying, cause like that, that's basically how I did it is I wrote down like a massive roadmap of if I wanted to, to do this thing, then here are all the different categories of things I would need to tackle. And I started to build a roadmap and this is like a 5, 10, 15, 20 year goal. Mm-hmm. And that allowed me to then have like a tangible kind of recipe of like, follow the steps, 
And eventually I should be able to get to where I'm at. But it's also important to kind of be realistic about where you're currently at. Like if you were to look at it like a map, you would say you are here. So like, what do you have that you can leverage? And a lot of us will be like, I don't have anything. I've got this interest in this thing, but that's at least something you can leverage. But bit by bit, you're going to get more and more progress with what you're doing. And that's when you can start to say, well, okay, what can I leverage now? Well, now I have this connection. I managed to email this person, you know, at the studio, maybe they would invest some time into me and mentor me, or what mm -hmm. can I do to get in front of the right people? And eventually you start making progress and moving forward. Um, I do think it's really important to be realistic about where you're at and be honest, because the more that you're able to be objective uh, or critical of yourself, the more that you can figure out, well, what's the strategy to get better? Mm -hmm. And I do think the, the kind of curse of being younger and less experienced is that usually the more young you are, the more overconfident you are. And so a lot of us think that we're the best and we're going to do amazing things and we're not as critical on ourselves. And so I think that's definitely something that we need to get better at doing. I, I think that nobody's a lost cause. It really comes down to work ethic because you can always leverage what you're good at and what you're bad at. And I think as a manager, that's a really powerful thing to be able to understand. Like when someone, like even when you interview someone for a job and you say like, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? And in other words, like, what are you good at? But also what are you bad at? I'm not trying to decide like, okay, you're terrible at this. I'm not going to hire you. It's okay. This is not your area. I'll make sure to avoid giving you those tasks. I'll give it to someone else. And the more that you can leverage like what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are, the more that you can leverage that. And if you're naive to that, and you just think you're great at everything, then you are going to fall into those traps. So I'll just tie this into one last thing. I was chatting with Mark Toya the other day. He's a feature film director. He's got a new movie coming out in December, Monsters of Man. And he's, um, he's a really fascinating guy. I met him 20 years ago, worked on a few commercials, and he's had this amazing uh, career over the last 20 years. So I asked him what his opinion of, of um, artist is that you know, what's the difference between those who make it and those who don't? And I liked his answer because it's a lot more brutally honest than I would probably put it. And he said that he mentors a lot of people and they're all amazingly talented, but the difference is that some have got it and the rest are lazy. In other words, it comes down to work ethic. If mm. you're willing to put in the time, if you're willing to look more strategic at what you're doing, in other words, you're not just thinking I've got talent, therefore I'll make it or I'll let my work speak for itself. In other words, if you understand that you're in a business, so if you're just focusing on the service that you provide, like banging the hammer or using PowerPoint, if you dumb it down to that, like it doesn't matter how good you are at doing your, your thing, that doesn't matter if you're neglecting every other aspect of, of what it takes to be successful. Mm -hmm. So those who are able to look more strategically at what they do and be able to leverage what they're good at, realize, okay, I either got to get better at these things or avoid them or find someone else who can fill in those gaps. You can start to be a lot more strategic and, and build at your career path and move ahead. But if you're just kind of like naive and floating around and think, yeah, I'm really good and everyone's going to hire me because I'm really good, then you're going to be one of those people who's always complaining that you're being, you know, charged uh, or, I'll say like you're being underbid or everyone is always, you know, beating you down on price. And it's because you're essentially leveraging that I've got this skill and every other person's coming along saying, I've got this skill. So mm -hmm. when you're all comparable and you've got 
nothing else to leverage, then everyone is going to look at that like, okay, you're all the same. So who's cheaper? And the bit by bit that you go through it all, you can start to build out a strategy, understand how to position yourself in a way that the clients or the person hiring you is going to understand that you're the best person for the job because you're able to leverage whatever additional talent or understand what their pain points are that you can really um, become more of a, a bigger attribute to the production than just having talent or having a skill that everyone else can do. I think it's important, um, at least in what I do and a lot of people I work with, to be somewhat of a generalist, or at least to have mm-hmm. a good amount of knowledge in what compositing or simulation or whatever, like at least like a good basic understanding, even if it's just for communication purposes. But would you say for like a real or a portfolio, you would get more work if you were maybe focused purely on like um, particle simulation work or just, uh, I don't know, like fume FX type stuff. Like if you narrowed down, would that be better overall versus like Mm -hmm. a more open-ended generalist kind of portfolio? I'll say this, like um, the way that I look at it is like an hourglass, like everyone's career is the same, that you're going to start out broad and mm-hmm. eventually you're going to need to specialize. And then after that, at a certain point, you're going to need to go broad again. Either you move into directing feature films and you need to know the lay of the land in all the other areas to, as you said, communicate to everyone, or you end up becoming a manager or supervisor. Um, in general, you know, it's usually later on that you have that altitude. So you you need to understand what everyone does. So that way you can um, manage them better or communicate better with everyone around you. But a lot of people are afraid to ever specialize or niche down because they think that they're going to be missing out on opportunity by passing up everything saying, I'm only good at this. And, and that's really kind of the wrong narrative that we're not saying I'm only good at this. And we're not really missing out on opportunity, we're actually creating more opportunity because we're eliminating competition. So the best example I can give is that, especially when I was in Santa Monica, I get a lot of people coming up to me on the street just saying, hey, uh, I just want to quickly say hi, here's my business card. And it would always say the same stuff. It would be web page designer slash 3D artist (laughs) slash wedding photographer or whatever. And it's so broad. And if I'm looking to hire someone, and everyone says generalist, 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 and one person says lighting TD or scene assembler, environment artist, whatever it is that's a little bit more specific, that's gonna resonate a lot more for me because it's gonna make me think, okay, like you're owning this niche. You're saying, this is what I do, not I do everything. Because you look at it like one's surface is horizontal, the other one is more depth. You're going vertical on your skills. So it's easy to say, well, I wanna go broad because that way I'll have more opportunity, but that's the same kind of script that we keep telling ourselves that, um, you know, I keep applying for jobs and this, this industry is such a young man's game because I keep getting passed up. Like everyone just wants the cheaper artists and it's because we're not leveraging something to make us stand out. Um, the last thing I'll say is that, you know, me 15 years ago, I wouldn't even believe this would be possible, but now I look at like the, the artists who are making 200 grand a year or 500 grand a year or more than that, they're the ones who decided or had the confidence to realize like, okay, I need to niche down. And now they're the ones who look back and it's like, yeah, like the secret to earning more and being more successful, picking your projects and having clients come to you rather than you having to compete and pitch for work like everyone else is that they decided to really level up and, and narrow down the niche and focus on one thing. And 
it doesn't mean that you're missing an opportunity. You're still going to get jobs for other stuff, mm -hmm. but it means that you're doing something. Your message is going to make you stand out a lot more than I do everything because you can't resonate with everyone. When you try, you resonate with no one. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a very, very good point. I was doing like a commercial motion design type stuff before being full-time mm -hmm. on production crate. And on our website, we had like, um, we do like video work, like we'll shoot, talking head corporate videos right. and you know we can do like some graphic design or whatever and then it's like we don't even want to do that stuff what we want to do is like the high-end motion design and the second we got rid of it all we had one nice reel we had maybe like five portfolio items it wasn't like you know grid display of 600 different random projects we started to get those gigs because that's the type of work we were showing off so I think it's, you know, you can, it, not just you'll get more of the work, but you'll get more of the work that you want. Like I doubt people who have those business cards, that's just like a paragraph of abilities. They actually want to do all those things equally. Like they don't. Well, they're scared. They're scared they're going to miss out an opportunity because they're going to be passing certain things up. And mm -hmm. it's one of these things that everyone has resistance to. And it's the number one reason why they're still having to compete on every single job. Like if you name anyone who is ultra successful, who's like, wow, that is a name brand in my niche, in my industry. That's, I guarantee you, like they have something that they're known for. It doesn't mean like, oh, they're only good at this one thing. And like I said, with the hourglass, you're not starting out narrow. You start out broad, you have an understanding of what you're doing, but eventually you're gonna need to, if you wanna elevate up, mm -hmm. otherwise you stay down here. And I look at this like uh, there's some people who tell me like if I had known what I know now, and this is kind of hard for I'm sure a lot of people to to hear. Like if I know if I knew back then what I know now that VFX is a young man's game. That's that's like a, a favorite quote of mine because I've heard it from so many people. And this is from someone let's say who's been doing it for 15 years, and they think that all the young people are getting all the jobs and uh, they're being having to compete with the younger people in price. And when I think you've been doing this for 15 years and you're still competing against people who have zero years of experience, like what have you been doing for the last 15 years that you're still essentially in the mailroom? You either haven't been able to um, take your career seriously and, and really move forward and you've just been floating or you um, just haven't figured out a way to communicate like this is what I do better or why hiring me over a younger person would be beneficial. You know, if you're comparable to a person with zero years experience, then of course they're gonna go with the younger person. So whose fault really is that? It's not the industry is rigged. It's just you are deciding to, um, to not move forward and be more thoughtful in your career. There's no strategy behind it, right? So yeah. the last thing I'll just say about that is like, um, like I said, anyone who's like a name brand or whatever, it's not that they suck at anything else, it's, it's just, they get really well known for whatever. And that's what makes them front of mind. It's like, oh, Ash Thorpe, he does really amazing like sci-fi stuff or, um, you know, the UX stuff that he does for motion graphics is amazing. Like Raf Grazetti, you know, wow, the character work that he does is amazing. It isn't, wow, that 3D model or generalist is absolutely unreal at what they do. It doesn't mean that they can't be a 3D generalist and do all that stuff, but there's something that they've done that everyone now associates with them. And it means that when you leave a meeting, you're like, let's try and get Raph or let's try and get Ash. It's not, let's try and get the generalist. And I love those moments where you get like four emails from the same company. And it's because you can tell, like they obviously had a meeting and they're like, let's try and get so-and-so 
you know, uh, on the project. So they all leave and they're trying to contact you at the same time. Right. And that means that you're doing your job right, that you're front of mind, that they're like, we need this. What if we got that person for the, the job? It means mm-hmm. that you've already qualified yourself with ever, without ever having to put your hat in the circle. Yeah. Yeah, I think that uh, hourglass metaphor or whatever is like a really cool way of looking at it. Because that is like that middle section, that's the hook, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. your branding. That's what gets the attention. That's what like hammers in your image into their head. And then like, you know, you whether you you scale up in like a supervisor type position or running your own business or you actually just want more opportunities now at least you've worked with those people and you have that network. So they might come to you like, Hey, like who would you use for this? Or is this something else you can do because they've worked with you before and they trust your abilities? Hopefully. It's also, if you look at any business, it's the same thing. Like for them to, you know, whether you were thinking about Nike, you know, with shoes or uh, any company on the planet who's successful or they do, for them to stand out and to have built a successful brand, they needed at one point to specialize and build that name. Later on, you know, cause you can look at a lot of businesses and say, well, they have like all of these different products and they're doing all these different things, all these different services, visual effects studios doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. But it's because they narrowed down, they got that attention and then they're able to leverage that and at some point they're like, okay, now we are a name brand. People come to us, they consider us successful and have us front of mind. Now we can scale. And that's when they're gonna to start to expand out into different things. Like a mm-hmm. good example would be Scanline Visual Effects. Like that studio, you know, what are they known for? Water, like that's how they managed to get there in. Otherwise they would have been just a regular visual effects studio. There's nothing that they were doing that's different to anyone else, like doing great work. There's so many other really great studios that are still somewhere in the middle. But Stefan built this proprietary tool, Flowline, and he was able to start pitching on water work. And that meant that they built out a service that people would go to them for water. And once they managed to get that momentum with their business, that's when they would expand into, okay, let's do realistic digital doubles. Let's do destruction. So suddenly Game of Thrones, you know, half the stuff that you see is all destruction, fire, water, all the stuff that they, they're known for. Um, bit by bit, you can expand out, you know, at the, at the top of mm-hmm. that hourglass, but to have that opportunity in the first place, you needed to niche down first, and then you can leverage the momentum, the success that you're getting to then expand out and do other things. The last thing I'll say is like, same thing with an artist. Initially, you might niche down and you get to a point where it's like, okay, I can either raise my rates or I can hire more people because the the bottleneck is me at this point. You know, like I can't do all these jobs. So I either raise my rates to filter out most of the jobs and that way I'm doing less, but I'm making the same amount of money. So um, that way it's, it's profitable and it's less stress or I end up hiring more artists to do what I'm doing and that way we can take on more work. But mm-hmm. that's typically the kind of next step in your career once you leverage what you're, you're known for. What was, when you kind of found that middle of the hourglass, like I, what was that for you? I, I want to say like particle type stuff, but that's probably because that's what I've just seen most of your work. It's like more like the fire and destructive stuff. And like, I know you're a big tie flow guy. So like, is, is it something around there? Or was it? Um, it's everything. I mean, you can have multiple niches and you can also pivot. But what, what was yours? What, what was so, yours? Uh, different for different people, but um, there's there's been times where like, I didn't really see myself as having a name early in, in my career. In Australia, it was a much smaller industry. So like, mm-hmm. you know, I'd get work and people knew who I was, but 
I just kind of saw it like, okay, like I'm, I'm lucky that, you know, I'm, I'm one of those guys getting work. And when I went to the States, I was expecting to be a nobody. I wasn't coming over like I'm, I'm a big shot. I was expecting to be starting my career over and be a small fish in a massive, massive ocean. Mm -hmm. And that's what kind of shocked me a little bit as I started to go to Digital Domain or all these other studios. And, you know, I'd introduce myself like I'm Alan. And after a, a few minutes of chatting, they'd say like, wait, you're not Alan McKay, are you? And that was always something that shocked me. It was just, I didn't expect to have any traction there, but I, that's another interesting thing is that um, in a way, like going to where there's more competition, it means that that, that industry has proven that there obviously is more of a need for that thing. So Australia, mm -hmm. there wasn't a huge need for effects. In the US, there's a massive need for effects or whatever you, know, you might specialize in. So because of that, it meant that bit by bit, like people's names might get thrown around a little bit more. So when I came over uh, originally, um, it would have been doing, you know, particle flow or dynamics, destruction, stuff like that. But then over time, like fume effects came out, I started getting the fire. So like, let's say rhythm hues, for instance, like they had developed all this proprietary software for doing water and all these other things. They hadn't tackled fire yet. So they're looking at, okay, let's write some fire software. And that's when they're like, well, what if we just hired Alan and he could just build a fire department? Like, why do we need to go and start from scratch with everything? And same way when I went to ILM, again, you know, even further in my career, though, going to ILM, I figure, okay, leave the ego at the door. I'm going in as small fish in this giant pond of freaking amazing, talented artists. So uh, I'm just really honored to even be a part of that machine. Mm -hmm. And going in there, like first day, first week, people would come up and be like, you're the fire guy. And that was really interesting to me, just kind of seeing how people might interpret what I do. And in more recent years, I've gotten into other industries where I am starting from scratch, like let's say in the marketing space. Um, that's been really interesting, helping a lot of people with learning to market, brand their services or what they're doing. And that's where I got really into pricing psychology, branding and product launches. And mm -hmm. that's like a whole other thing as well. So there's different niches for different industries that you can get known for, but you know, ultimately people are gonna either build their own assumptions or their own reputation around like what they think you do, or you can get out there and you know take control of that. So there's definitely been times where I've kind of picked certain software or certain things I think are trending and think, okay, well, this is a chance to occupy that space hmm. and be able to get into like a, what you call like a blue ocean. In other words, it's not red, it's not sharks eating everyone alive. It's, it's your own little pool that you can kind of build out a name in. And so yeah, over the years, it's been different things, but it's definitely been interesting to kind of say, okay, well, this is something that's up and coming. You know, I'd like to jump onto that and become, you know, associated with that. So when they look for an expert, or when they think of that product, they're going to think of you and vice versa. And that's what you ultimately want to do. And you don't need to do that for, you know, you don't need to be the best in the world at something. You can be the best in your town or the best in your client's Rolodex. That's all it needs to be is that when they think we need fire, you don't need to be like, I'm Mr. Fire Guy for the entire planet or whatever um, assumption that might be. But mm -hmm. it might just be like, you know, your client that you're always working with, whenever they need fire, they call you. Mm -hmm. And so it just kind of depends on the, the scale, like macro or micro or wherever you want to position yourself. Totally. Uh, out of all of the various roles that you have played or worked on, do you have a favorite, like a, a position within post-production? 
Uh, or production, I guess, like being on set as a VFX supervisor or. Yeah, it, it varies. And I think that that's one thing that we're, we're really fortunate to be in is that most careers, you know, you've got to, if you're going to change career, you're essentially starting over. And I've really found it to be really fortunate that you can pivot very easily. You can move sideways in your career. So having done this for a long time, like I've done a lot of different things because over time, you're like, you know what? I don't want to be doing stuff on the box anymore. So there's been years where I um, started producing and supervising exclusively, and that was really fun for a while. And I, I think just as a producer, there's so many things I, I learned that going back on the box again, I was way better at self-managing myself and kind of looking at everything more from a, a schedule or a money point of view. So I'm, I'm not, even when there's m not money involved, but it's just more about the um, the commitment of time that I'm willing to give something, knowing that the grand scheme of things, I've got all these other things to do. And that to me is just kind of allowed me to kind of manage myself and manage other people a lot better. Um, directing commercials has been really fun as well. But that's the thing is like the more I'm off the box, then occasionally I'll get back on and I'm like, oh man, this is great. Like I don't have a thousand moving parts. I've got my headphones on and I get to do one thing like, mm -hmm that can be really peaceful knowing that you're not having to worry about the big picture and all these moving parts that you're not really responsible for. And, you know, every artist is essentially holding you captive to their schedule and, and what they're promising that they're going to deliver. Um, but I think that in a, in a lot of ways, like the thing I find most rewarding is just always been helping other artists. And that's always just been fun to really look at like, okay, I've done a bunch of stuff. I'm pretty, content with where I'm at in my career, but looking at a lot of other people who have these big aspirations and they're struggling with, with where they're at. Like one of my uh, students in my mentorship, he came to me recently, you know, originally he started out with zero years experience and uh, he's in my mentorship for a year and recently hit me up and he's like, hey, so I've been lead at one of the big studios in LA for quite a while now and I'm looking at what's next. And I want to get into supervising on set. So like, how do I go about doing that? And this is really cool to kind of see these massive shifts that people are making in their career, the, the momentum that they're building up um, and where they're going to, that they're looking for the next phase in their career, not mm -hmm. why am I not getting the job in the first place? And that to me has been way more rewarding than mm -hmm. working on shots or, or anything really. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I definitely want to get into like your transition into teaching and providing your knowledge. Um, but I want to do like, a, I, I want to touch on like a little bit more of your work history before you made that transition. Was yeah. there a favorite film or a favorite project that you worked on that you kind of have as like, this is, this is your personal flagship of, you know, mm -hmm. favorite shot or whatever. For whatever reason, I really loved working on God of War and I've, I just worked in God of War again. Actually, Raf Grosetti hit me up. Um, he, he was like, um, wanted me to get on uh, that again. Uh, mm -hmm. Just thinking how I mentioned him before, but um, I worked on the live action commercial of God of War for the Super Bowl. And that was with Imaginary Forces. All the guys were there, Jeremy Cox and um, John Hassel, Karen Fong uh, was directing it. And I don't know, I, I think for whatever reason that just really resonated. Like they, they called me up and they sent me the storyboards and everything for it. And I was in New Orleans working on a movie down there at the time and just seeing the boards, like I didn't really know much about God of War. Um, I knew of it and it looked really cool. And yeah, like for whatever reason, like that was something that I really just 
took ownership of and like wanted this thing to be the best it could be. And so that was one that I really loved. I think also mm -hmm. Avengers um, Endgame, like that one was another one that uh, I really loved. And it's kind of funny because a lot of these like working on Blade and like all these other movies along the way, like each one. You disintegrate kind of, something, right? <laughs> well, I think all the, three of those projects, there's like a big disintegration. Exactly. Effect. And, and that was the kind of the interesting thing is that, um, you know, early in my career, I'd, I'd hear people say, you don't want to get pigeonholed. And that was something that's like the worst thing in the world is get pigeonholed into doing one thing. And while I'm talking about like personal brand and stuff like that, like that was one thing I realized along the way that, you know, yeah, you can get pigeonholed and stuff, but you can also just be, like I said, like front of mind for certain things. So mm -hmm. I managed to build, let's say a brand uh, around disintegrating stuff and I've worked on dozens of projects. It got to the point where I started turning down movies because it was just like, oh, I'm sick of vampires or whatever. And yeah. then, um, but then I look at it like every single one of these was the reputation of the last job led to the next one. But th while that's happening, I'm also getting pigeonholed for fire. I'm getting pigeonholed for pipeline development. I'm getting pigeonholed for all of these different things. And so it isn't that you're getting pigeonholed. It's just you're occupying all these different pockets where when someone thinks, oh, we need something disintegrated, it's like, let's go get Alan. And so that, that was really interesting to me because when Avengers came up, that was because of God of War. God of War was because of, um, you know, a bunch of other stuff. But like before that was Daybreakers. And I got Daybreakers because the, direct, the Spirit Brothers, the directors in the film, they're like, we kind of want something like Blade. And I'm like, well, yeah, I did that. So, uh, you know, if you want that, let's do it. And I partnered up with someone else who coincidentally worked on Blade 2. So we were competing bids for this movie. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, why don't we just partner our companies together and we can, you know, dominate the, the film. So it meant yeah. that we picked the sequences we wanted and then all the other studios got to take our scraps, basically. Like, nice. it's mainly comp work, stuff like that. Um, but Avengers, to me, was really cool just because I had originally turned it down. I, I wasn't interested and... Um, the creative director was like texting me under the table, like, dude, it's Avengers. Cause they wouldn't tell me what it was, mm -hmm. but they were telling me that like, we need something like God of War, but you know, you've only got a, three days to work on it or something like that. Oh and gosh. I'm like, that, that sounds like suicide. So um, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to pass. And then when I found it was Avengers, I'm like, you know, maybe, and I didn't really know much about um, what they specifically wanted. And it ended up being a really cool project, but it's stuff like that, where it's just, it's usually the stuff that comes along that you just instantly kind of get attracted to. Like once yeah. you know what it is, you're like, oh yeah, this really resonates. What what shot for um, Avengers or what was like so the big shot that you worked on? Avengers was actually the poster. Um, mm -hmm. I have it okay. in this room somewhere. I don't know where. But, yeah. Oh yeah, it's over in the corner there. But um, I saw you've done like a... What, was it a free course for the Thanos disintegration in Typho yeah. that you did? I, I put out that just to, that was for fun. I, I didn't actually intend to have touched Avengers at all at that time. I was just, oh, I really? thought it'd be really fun. Actually, no, I'd take it back. I'd just seen it. Cause like, that was the thing too. Marvel wanted to make it match all the stuff that we saw in Infinity War. And I started, mm -hmm. I worked on Avengers the day that uh, the first one came out, Infinity War. And, um, so at that point they wanted us to make the poster, but they wouldn't give me the reference or anything to even know how it looked. So I flew down to LA, went to the Arclight Theater with, um, with everyone and watched it. And that was like, yeah, I worked on that. And then just for fun, I thought it'd be fun to make Thanos disintegrate, not knowing how the um, end game finished. It was just 
it'd be funny to see him as being one of the 50% that disintegrated. And yeah. Uh, yeah, so I just did that for fun. But I shot that in Portland, Oregon and had my team like uh, model it and track it and everything. Actually, the modeling was done by Carlos, uh, sorry, Franco Colissimo um, over in Spain. He did an amazing job on that. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I had my team track the shots and do all the rigging and everything. And yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, it was an awesome project. And then, so you had this awesome career and then you decided to pass on the knowledge. What was like the first thing that you, um, what, did you start with like a YouTube channel and you're just like, oh, maybe I'll teach people how to use like FumeFX or something. And it kind mm-hmm. of took off from there. It's funny when YouTube came out, like I only just really started messing around on YouTube a year ago because I, um, I was always like, oh, YouTube's ugly. Like Vimeo is way better quality. So I <laughs> was always posting stuff in Vimeo. And then it's uh-huh. only been more recently. I'm like, ah, uh, well, Google, like YouTube's the second biggest search engine on the planet. Yeah. Like maybe I should have probably been using that the whole time. Um, the first tutorial I ever made was actually one of the first ever sub D modeling tutorials out there. Mm-hmm. Everyone was obsessed with NURBS and patches and there wasn't many people modeling in, in, uh, in like sub D like polygons back then. So I created a uh, character modeling tutorial back in like 97, I think. And so I did a, a bunch of stuff there and then I started to put out a lot of particle effects tutorials when 3ds max um, became bigger mm-hmm. and um, you know so i was putting out a lot of training for a lot of years but yeah so it's kind of always been something that i always did in the background for at least 20 years just because i always wanted to kind of show people what i had figured out so that way they didn't have to go down the same path and i, I love that too because some people will learn something and then they'll go and expound upon what i've done and make it better and then you know, I get to learn something from them. And so I, I love mm-hmm. just this kind of back and forth that everyone's sharing. Uh, but it's only been like the last year that I started kind of getting more into YouTube and just deciding to publish a lot of things that I, th- I feel people need rather than it being put out a tutorial for the sake of a tutorial. It's more, you know, hey, here, let me put out a tutorial on how to write an email correctly because I get right. hundreds of emails that are just terribly written asking for a job. Or let me deconstruct a film the way that you know, I've given talks in the past on stage where I deconstruct my reel, mm-hmm. um, kind of talking about like if, if Autodesk or someone at SIGGRAPH would say, hey, someone uh, got held up at the airport and can't do their talk. Can you do a second talk? They'd be like, OK, uh, I'll talk about my reel. And I always thought that model of doing things worked really well. So I'm like, well, what if I deconstructed, you know, film work and talked about um, how I would tackle it or whatever? And it's just more kind of giving a bit of a behind the scenes view of like, deconstructing a shot and what goes into it. So you're looking at the final product, but getting a bit of a glimpse into potentially how to approach doing something like that, which for a lot of people, it's a bit of a mystery. Like they're doing 3D, but they don't see the full picture. Mm-hmm. And this is a chance to, to get a bit more of that. So just whatever I think is kind of um, lacking at the time that people could benefit from. Yeah, those, the like case studies and breakdowns are my personal favorite. It's cool to like mm. get like the artistic kind of look of like why this choice was made or maybe, mm-hmm. you know, this is kind of, I, I guess it's both. It's like the technical of how you might approach it and like the creative of like, you know, like uh, Terminator Dark Fate, you were like, you broke down like the lightning shine. You're like, these little sparks are nice. Like it might not mm-hmm. be uh, physically accurate, but it gives it that nice like orange look to kind of contrast yeah. with the blue, which is obviously like a very beautiful thing to see well i would just say like the tricky thing is that i'm like the first time i did it was venom and in the back of my mind like i'm pointing out mistakes and things that are going on but i'm also trying to uh 
have the back of the people doing it saying like, there's always a, a story behind it. So, you know, this, you can see the samples are wrong or this is, this is bad, mm -hmm. but there's probably a reason behind this. And it's just kind of funny because I'm, I'm always self-conscious about the people who worked on the film are going to be watching my stuff. And, and uh, you know, so I'm, I'm always wanting to be brutally honest, but I'm also wanting to kind of defend why, let's say in a movie trailer, something mightn't look very good. It's like, well, you need to understand that we have temp deliveries. And that means that usually we might need to deliver, you know, semi-final shots six months before the movie comes out. And then we go back to making it better. So there's always something that we've got to kind of take into consideration when we're looking at this stuff. But it's just funny seeing the comments, like um, I did one on Twister and um, hmm. I think it's Stefan Stagmeyer, the, uh, I think that was the VFX soup on that. Like he contacted me right away. Like, oh, if you, you want to talk more about Twister, we can. Um, but then other people are commenting like, okay, you know, like Spider-Man, like Alan approved my shot. Cool, I can, I can go back <laughs> to bed now. So, you know, I'm always kind of a little bit self-conscious that, um, you know, while I'm breaking down other people's work, it's, it's something that I've, I'm very aware that they're going to be looking at too. And, um, you know, I don't want to be too brutal on them when, you know, it's, it's always going to be a, a bit of a sensitive topic. Yeah. But I'm sure like, I mean, you get the, whatever like time constraints they had or yeah. the fact that like, they don't always have like a final say on a creative, you know, like something might've been the director's choice or someone else's decision that wasn't. I've worked on movies where we had, like I had two days, like I worked on bloodshot and I had, I think four days in that film. And this was four days before the movie was going to come out. Mm -hmm. And um, there's other times where like Superman, they cut the entire beginning of the film because it's a 30 minute uh, portion of the film. And then they give us like 15 days to do a couple of minutes of CG back to back, you know? And so there's always going to be uh, a lot of constraints that you got to work within. And that's the fun part of what we do. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why, like there, there's, I mean, I, you know, I feel like, um vfx artist and cg in the public eye gets criticized and this this might not be true but criticized more than like any other art form and maybe mm -hmm. it's because like uh you want everything to be super believable and not like distractingly overproduced or whatever but still like you know everyone's like oh real is always bare it's like no like you guys just don't mm -hmm. see like some visual effects are intentionally hidden and not there and some are meant to be over the top and you just can't do it like get that shot in real life like does that bug you at all i assume it has um, to to some degree it's it's more that it it became a thing where people who aren't you know they don't have, they don't have a trained eye and so they finally feel like there's something that they can you know point out and they feel kind of good about like oh yeah mm -hmm. like that, that looked bad. And so it's very easy to gang up on it. I think it's partially just this history because, you know, I look at, you know, Twister as a good example, or Jurassic Park or Terminator. I was actually just chatting with David Tanaka the other day. Like his first job was Jurassic Park. And it's just, it's kind of crazy to go back that far. And you look at those films and they almost all hold up today. Um, yeah. Like most of them, they look amazing. And it's because they put the, the care and consideration into what they're doing. And uh, they were only going to do it if they could actually pull it off. And the problem was that that was so well done that it became a, a big buzzword, like visual effects, CGI, mm -hmm. this is the future. And then everyone started in the nineties doing CGI. And the thing is that there'd be studios getting feature film work where it's like, uh, we, got a, we got a copy of Maya. So now we're a visual effects studio and they wouldn't know what they're doing. And people are having crappy budgets and just putting out really bad work. So there's mm -hmm. this 
massive era of just terrible CG for a good five to six years. And then, you know, they kind of had this kind of bar of good CG and then terrible stuff at that point you wouldn't really see. And I think just having that bad portion in the late nineties where everyone's doing bad CGI, it, um, it kind of created that reputation that everyone kind of continued with after that. So hmm. I don't know, it's, it is what it is, but again, it's, it's also that a lot of places don't want to put money and time into what they're doing. So unfortunately, you know, if, if you do a terrible thing on set, you can cut away from it or you can try to, you know, use CG to augment it and try and improve on it. But mm-hmm. usually if um, you try and tackle it in post, then you're not dealing with the production budget. You're dealing with post-production budget, which is typically a lot smaller. And at that point, you know, you're, you're kind of stuck with what you get if the money isn't there, the time isn't there. A lot of visual effects houses have been like forced to close down and there's, you know, like the, the crazy like uh, bidding wars on projects. And then there's like the insane timelines and crazy high expectations and like this pretty big, like uh, disconnect between like where the money comes from and who it gets to is how do you feel about the industry in general right now? Like what, what is, does it need to change to be sustainable? Um, Man, it's such a big topic. It's usually when I try to stay away from a little bit because it's Mm -hmm. again, like a big buzzword, but it's, I I feel like um, it became a really big thing to kind of point out, like the same way that a lot of people say that visual effects, you, you don't make much money and you work crazy hours and all this stuff. And it's like, well, most industries you can think of that are like serious careers that people dedicate their entire life to work in that industry. Mm. Most of them are crazy hours and all the things that you're, most people would say about CGI or VFX, um, they apply there too. If you're a lawyer, you're probably going to be working crazy hours. You're, you know, you're going to be putting a lot of time into what you do. And so it's just like visual effects kind of became a bit of a, a target. It had the spotlight on it for a while, but at the same time, like I think there's a lot of speculation around like studios shutting down because again, because it's like a big trending topic of VFX being a bad industry, it means that whenever there is a slip up, like studio shut down, that's when everyone makes it headline news rather than, you know, you pointing out like if a law firm, I'm going to stick with the, the lawyer metaphors okay, here, but, yeah. you know, if a, a law firm were to shut down, it's not like everyone's saying, oh, the, you know, the law industry or, you know, law firms are an unstable industry. Um, so mm-hmm. I think this is worthwhile kind of addressing that first just to say like, whenever there are any slip ups or anything going on, it definitely gets a lot more attention. And because of that, it paints a worse picture. Hmm. 2012, there was a lot of instability and that's when LA was starting to, there's a lot of disruption. Like LA was starting to lose work to Vancouver and that's where there was a bit of a shift. And there was probably about six months that looked a little bit like, ooh, like what's going on? I was secretly a little bit happy that other countries were starting to get a piece of the pie. It wasn't, you need to be in the London, Vancouver, LA, New York bubble. Mm-hmm. And so there's that, but at the same time, like it, um, it, it has slanted a little bit. Unfortunately with feature film, the big kind of five studios like Fox and Paramount and Sony, they've definitely forced a lot of big studios to say like, if, if you want to work in feature film, we won't talk to you unless you have an office in Vancouver. And that means that a lot of times they'll award work to Vancouver. Like let's say digital domain, I'm kind of hesitant to get into names, but let's say DD, they'll, um, they'll get work awarded to them in Vancouver. And it means that 
the work then gets trickled down to LA. And even though technically they're not meant to do that, uh, it means that you're going to have a Vancouver supervisor. And it also means that you've got a Vancouver budget, even though the subsidies, so that way the government is paying for some of it. It also means that you're dealing with a Canadian budget and you're dealing with an LA like Playa Vista mm-hmm. studio. So that is kind of tricky where um, you're kind of needing to have like middleman or middle studio funding a, a way more expensive studio as well. Mm-hmm. And there's little imbalances like that, that are kind of tricky that I'm not a big fan of. Um, yeah. So it's, I don't think it's as volatile as it is. Like the whole big domino effect that started all this was rhythm and Hughes when they were going to shut down, they got acquired in the end, but when they were going to shut down, it, it wasn't like one day they're like, Oh, we're out of money. It was just, they were waiting for a bunch of very big paychecks from some of the movies they were working on. And this isn't the first time that it happened with them. They had a few times had to have meetings with everyone on the team saying like, Hey, just FYI, we can't pay you for the next week. We're going to get a check for, you know, $10 million or whatever in uh, a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this isn't the first time, but you know, just bear with us and, and we'll figure it out. But unfortunately there's one time that that had happened it got leaked to the media that Rhythm and Hughes can't pay their employees. And they've got, I think it was like a thousand employees. I forget what they were at the time. I had dinner with a lot of the higher ups um, the day that it happened. And it was just really tragic because when that happened and it got made public that Mm -hmm. they didn't have money and all this stuff, it looked like they were unstable when all it was, was that ebb and flow that, you know, a lot of places have to deal with. So when that happened, it meant that all the other studios were like, oh, r is unstable. So they pulled all their films as well. And that's the nail in the coffin. That's what caused everything to go bad is mm. that when everyone else found out and they're like, well, if, if they're you know unstable, we better take our films away. And that's when they're like, okay, now we don't have any money. And um, luckily I think it was like Iron Man 3, a couple of things like that. Uh, they were fortunate enough to be allowed to finish out. But in general, they, they had all the work pulled and that's what killed them. And that kind of created this hmm. um, kind of big, you know, uh, I'll say like story around like the industry being unstable and that kind of rippled out from there. So, you know, that created all the the protesting and, and stuff like that. And that was the same time that works going to Vancouver. So it was just a really bad time for everyone. And, and that kind of amplified the, the spotlight on VFX and the stability of it. Gotcha. Uh, since I, I don't know when it's really began, but I, I think you can kind of point to like video co-pilot Andrew Kramer is like this, I mean, probably not just, but like a big starting point of like, I don't even know if there's a term for it, but more like indie to semi-amateur visual effects that are focusing on more on, um, internet content, viral videos, some commercial work, and now social media has been really, really big. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like big, big celebrity names, probably with decent budgets, paying these individual artists to create whatever UFOs flying over their heads or explosions, lasers, like quick comp work usually, but some like pretty high sim stuff. I feel like the tools have become more accessible to individual artists, like the more budget friendly type stuff or just more options out there. Um, how do you feel about like the, that side of visual effects versus, you know, like the, the feature film blockbuster side? They're just different categories. I mean, if anything, it's allowing independent filmmakers to be able to go out there and do this stuff. And like, if I looked at the last 10 years, 
the amount of feature film directors I know who just popped up because they went and made a short film for next to nothing mm -hmm. and put it online and got enough attention around it. And there's always strategy with it, but it's been really genius. It's like a lot of my friends who've managed to shotgun their career into directing Sonic the Hedgehog or Bloodshot or like all of these other like big, big films. Mm -hmm. And it's always been that they got in a lot of notoriety or not always, but that's definitely been like a, a good way that you don't need to play the old game that has always been typically how you would need to kind of roll the dice and hope that you dedicate your life to directing and maybe you get to direct a feature one day, but instead going and, and doing something for a low budget, putting it online, letting people know about it ahead of time. And then when you get the views, it's basically saying that there's a proven audience for it. Like the reason that we don't get any original content these days, now COVID's happening, it's actually, um, helping force original content, which is great. But um, the reason that it's typically always reboots is because there's a proven audience already there. It's a pre-established audience. And that means that, okay, if we were to use this IP or put out this film or reboot this film, then there's people who are aware of it. It means we don't have to spend as much on marketing and we know that there's gonna be people who are going to um, go and see the theater. So we're gonna get ticket sales. Um, when you're able to have a big following online, the same way that like if you're writing a book, a lot of times they're gonna look at, well, how many followers do you have? Mm -hmm. In other words, how many people on Twitter can we sell your book to? Right. So there a lot of times there's that validation that goes through the channels, like those vanity metrics that you might have is really a way to, um, to show that you've got a proven audience that you could sell a product to. So that's mm -hmm. why, that way book publishers would actually be interested in you. It's the same way that a lot of movie studios will say, well, you've got a million followers online. So, you know, they're interested in your product. Like if you've got a million views on your short film, that means that there's people interested in this. Let's go make it. So suddenly lights out becomes a feature film or suddenly uh, another movie gets green lit because it got staff pick of the week on uh, Vimeo and mm -hmm. um, enough people saw it. That's like, okay, there's an interest for this. So it's kind of market testing without needing to have a product made first to say who wants to go see this movie. And that's become like a big thing. So I like the fact that there's this disruption where people can go and um, make, you know, cave trolls or monster hunters or whatever you, you want to do, knowing that there's an audience um, there for it. You're going to be able to kind of jump right into becoming the next Gareth Edwards or Neil Blomkamp just because, um, you know, you took an independent route rather than having to go the the old school way of going through the big studios and hoping that you manage to, you know, buddy up to the right person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Neil Baumkamp and uh, David Sandberg, I think are very good mm -hmm. examples of kind of like, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Alan, we're just past an hour. I want to keep talking, but well, let's, let's maybe reconnect in a year or something. I'd love to get you back on the podcast. I do have a couple speed questions before you go. Great for those. I'll, I'll give. I'll make him short since I know I've been going on for a while. No, no, it's all good info. All right, I think I know the answer to this, but uh, maybe not. Who is the best villain in any movie? I'm really curious what your answer is. Um, man, uh, by the way, I haven't slept yet, so <laughs> I'm have to think. Um, that's a good question. Oh, uh, <laughs> sorry, my brain's a little mush right now. Um, I know the movie. I'm just trying to think of mm -hmm. it right now man sorry my brain's all mush um uh, what's the do you know the movie name i'm no country for old men i was just trying to think of oh my oh. gosh what is his name yeah 
such a good video. So Javier Bordem was the yeah. actor. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's, I was watching a documentary uh, on more of a case study on evil and different like fictional characters. And uh, it was pretty fascinating on YouTube not that long ago. And I think that was in there somewhere, but it was also breaking down Nurse Ratchet from um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest mm-hmm. and a bunch of Hellraiser, like Pinhead. So uh, it was just kind was of fascinating. Was he a villain? I always just... felt like Pinhead. I, I think I only ever saw the first Hellraiser, but he just seemed like, like a force and not necessarily a villain. But like Nurse Ratchet for sure is like mm-hmm. villain. And well, I, I want to go back and watch Hellraiser again soon, just because um, like. I, one interesting attribute to it is like, I think that there's a lot more to Hellraiser, at least Hellraiser one, two, and three mm-hmm. uh, that tie into it. But it's more, he's like this, he is an evil person, but it's more like where they come from. And it's just pain and pleasure are kind of all tied into one. It's just an interesting aspect. There's yeah. a lot more depth to his character than most other characters. It's not just a slasher. It's right. You know, he's actually intelligent. And, you know, so again, it's just kind of looking at different people and kind of what makes them more in- intriguing. Yeah. Yeah, a little depth and not just like some dude with a knife or something. Um, are you going to wear any Halloween costume this year? And if so, what is it? Man, it's, it's COVID time. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I'm probably going to skip out on uh, Halloween this year and just kind of lay low. So I'll probably be wearing my PJs if that counts as a costume. Sure. Yeah, COVID <laughs> costume. Um, if you could own any spacecraft from any popular culture TV show, movie, book, whatever... What spacecraft would it be? I'm just going to cheat this one and say Millennium Falcon. Oh, um, man, yeah, yeah. I, I got nothing that's coming to mind right you now. You and half the world. I might choose <laughs> uh, a hoverboard from nice. Back to the Future. Yeah. Well, I didn't really still, I thought we were talking about space. So, I, uh, I said yeah. space, but I would still go with that because you can maybe use it in space. And That'd be a great steady cam. I'm down for that. Yeah, totally. Uh, are you reading any books right now? Yeah, uh, a couple because um, I'm... Yeah, I'm usually I'm trying to read a book a week at the moment. So um, I was just reading The Alter Ego from uh, Todd Herman. And uh, so I'm going through that at the moment. And I'm just rehashing a bunch of older books as well, because I'm Hmm. working on a new course. I kind of just needed to get into a bit more homework on certain things before I start quoting people incorrectly. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I don't really read too much fiction. Uh, I always wished I had more time to read fiction, but I, yeah, definitely read quite a lot. And um, yeah, so right now, that's what I'm going through is uh, The Alter Ego Effect by Todd Herman. Awesome. Uh, last question. What VFX shot, it could be a scene or like a single shot, has held up the best over the years? It could be just a couple years or it could be decades. I always go back to the T-Rex in Jurassic Park, you know, like, especially because most people don't even realize that the car is 3D as well when he's like chewing it apart in certain shots. Um, so I, I like those just because there's certain shots that they had the time to really give it the attention it deserved. Whereas most of the time we don't have that anymore. And, you know, mm-hmm. so, cause this, yeah, right now there's such like there's visual effects and everything. Like I can't even pick out my own shots on films. I remember uh, I'll just segue and say, like I worked on transformers and I remember nudging this girl I was dating at the time. Like, Oh yeah, like, here's one of my shots. And then a few minutes later, I'm like, Oh wait, no, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm always looking at Jurassic park as a good example of just knowing that they got to spend months on, you know, a couple of minutes of CG to really mm-hmm. try and sell it. Yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite? I mean, yeah. Like, <sighs> How do you not say Jurassic Park? Because it's it does hold up so well. And like watching it with a critical eye and like trying to like figure out like 
what how did they do that shot was that an animatronic or was that cg or like i yeah, i love like the the breakdowns or the behind the scenes of like mm-hmm. here's where it was and then notice like when the camera pans behind this like tree or rock or whatever then it's like the cg dinosaur and it's like you look the side only by shot side, that the only thing the holds up is the brontosaurus shots and that's just the textures aren't high res enough mm-hmm. uh, but initially my gut reaction was forrest gump um just because i feel like it's one of the first films to really focus on invisible effects they weren't mm-hmm. trying to use effects to sell tickets it was more about you know and that's the thing like what working with uh, bob zemeckis has always been this really inspiring like i've worked on flight as a good example of just yeah you know you're not trying to make a visual effects film per se even though some of his stuff has been um it's more about you know like i'll, I'll say this about flight that for me it's, it's probably one of the proudest films I've ever worked on because I felt like I actually worked on a real film rather than, yeah, I worked on this thing and, you know, it was a good paycheck and it was mm-hmm. fun. It's like, yeah, I, I worked on a movie, you know, and, yeah. and that's what I'm proud of was flight got me like sweating, that. dude, that, yeah. The, the whole like intro and the crash and stuff. Like mm-hmm. I, I was in it. I wasn't like, Oh, that's a beautiful, like VFX. I'm like, Oh my God, that like, like crashing past the church and everything. Like I, yeah. It felt I mean, like I'm in the trailer. Um, there, there's a shot where the plane's flying upside down. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I didn't know this. So I got an email. I still, I have a screenshot of the email at least. Um, but it was just really funny. It's like three in the morning. And I guess Robert Zemeckis had requested that there be pilots flying the plane. Cause I guess he zoomed in and realized like you can kind of see that there's no one in, inside the plane. Hmm. So they put me flying the plane instead of the hotel. <laughs> and um, they put, um, uh, I'm forgetting his name. Um, yeah, what, the compositing supervisor was the co-pilot. So uh, oh, yeah, that was, that was just pretty pretty funny because I had nothing to do with it. But it's just like, okay, I guess I'm Denzel's stunt double now. So that's kind of cool. Best cameo ever. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, can you tell our listeners and our viewers where they can find your work? Yeah, uh, if you go to alanmckay.com, I guess like that's a, a good place to go. Um, I've got some i do a lot of free training obviously so right now if you go to branding 10x.com i just needed a domain uh, but if you go there i've got a, a free branding course that uh it's about six videos about five hours of free training on how to build your personal brand so those are good two places to start but um yeah otherwise you know go around google or something and i'm sure you'll find mm-hmm. something and you run uh, your own podcast i think you've got like over 300 episodes or something right yeah uh, yeah we're up to like 280 something like that so wow. it's been going for 60 years it's pretty cool so again i think google is probably the easiest i call it an al mckay podcast because um you know i figured that way i'm not trying to divert energy into two different brands mm-hmm. so that's on the website as well you can check it out there awesome alan it was uh, great to talk to you been following your work for a while and yeah nice to finally chat thanks man this has been a blast thank you cool well yeah let's connect in like a year or two years or something and see what's going on Cool, man. Set that Google calendar. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) All right, Alan. Take it easy. See you. See you, man. Thank you for listening. And remember to make it awesome.